This is Sound of Phillips, a KRSM radio podcast that explores South Minneapolis, the communities who live and work here, the complex issues that we face, and the myriad ways that neighbors are rising to the challenge. I'm your host, Arna Landrum. On November 16, 2020, Minneapolis City Council held one of a series of public hearings on Mayor Fry's proposed 2021 city budget. Almost all residents who testified, five hours of testimony, appealed to the council to protect Minneapolis communities and keep them safe. For many of the callers, that sense of safety could be obtained by increasing the police budget and the number of officers on the street. Other residents who called into the virtual hearing told another story. They talked about feeling daily threat from the police department. For them, safety meant not only rejecting the request of Police Chief Arredondo for a half million dollars for more officers, but also rejecting any increase in the police budget. I'm struck by a memory from more than 20 years ago. I was a college student in Virginia, trying to earn some extra cash selling newspaper subscriptions. Our team focused on a suburban community outside of Norfolk, Virginia. I got turned around and noticed a sheriff's deputy getting ready to get in his car and head to work. Having heard my whole life that if you get lost, find a police officer and they will help you, I started walking towards him, all five feet one inches of me. I said good morning. He signaled for me not to come any closer and put his hand on his sidearm. I yelled to him from where I stood and asked for directions. I feel safe was the furthest thought from my mind, though I imagine that officer's neighbors felt that much safer having him there. I've been thinking a lot about safety and how it is that people have such wildly divergent feelings about whether or not the police represent safety. Many callers to the city's November 16th budget hearing suggested that reforms are necessary to address the chasm between who feels safe with increased police presence and who does not, usually black and brown and lower income people. On November 9th, I talked to community member, artist, and movement elder Ricardo Levens Morales about the debate surrounding policing in Minneapolis. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from a longer interview. In it, we discuss reform, its definition, and how and why reforms have and continue to fall short, and how not to be derailed by our fear of the as yet unseen, of doing things differently. And it's Ricardo, so of course there's a heaping dose of movement history. Take a listen. So here's what I was thinking. I was thinking about all of the art and all of the storytelling and not just, um, well, all of the storytelling, right? So in the recent past, we've had the two HBO properties. We had um, Watchmen on HBO, which did a lot of work over, um, over its arc to really um, highlight the ways that police are, are, um, are in bed with white supremacists, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, and it also, uh, I think, opened with that really powerful scene of the Tulsa massacre in 1921. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Lovecraft Country, which did, you know, also had its own Tulsa episode, but also did a lot of the work of uncovering the white supremacy in police departments. And then we had, right in our very own community here in Minneapolis, people looking at the disproportionate response of police to, pol- to peaceful protesters, um, the way that they were attacking journalists and the press, and all of this, and, and, and 
right? There was just this whole big like, oh no, like the veil is being lifted. Look at look at this corruption. I'm ready to fight in ways maybe I haven't been able to fight before. And then, and then, right, the call came to defund the police, to defund them, bring their budgets down to zero and do something else. And what I felt, because I think it's interesting that you talk about a veil lifting, what I felt was like a, ooh, but that's just too much. Mm -hmm. That's too much, we can't do that. We'll just give ammunition to the right. We'll just give them the fuel that they need. Um, you know, uh, you and I were talking earlier about how um, some of the more moderate, uh, not Republicans, goodness, more moderate Democrats have been lashing out against the more progressive wing saying that this kind of radical agenda almost cost us elections or re-elections. And so I think for me, it's interesting to hear you say that the veil has been lifted and this middle ground doesn't really exist anymore. And I wonder how, like, how do you respond to what for me felt a little, not as dramatic as whiplash, but it was a very like, yes, we're in it with you as long as you don't say that one thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's really the process of narrative change, right? It's um, in Puerto Rico where I'm from, there's no winter. Things are growing all the time, right? Mm -hmm. When I'm back in Puerto Rico and I'm going to go out for a walk on the mountainside, I got to borrow somebody's machete because stuff has all grown in, right? And when you open a path with a machete, you might be the only one out there, but you've created a path that other people can follow, right? And, and you know, what I'm saying is that any real change from the way people think, from what people are struggling for, um, has to start with somebody out there saying things that sound like crazy talk. That's how it gets normalized. That's what the right wing has done, and now they run the world, right? Um, you know, so that absolutely there needs to be a challenge. And when you challenge oppression, then that's going to scare oppression light, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I want to refer back to Frederick Douglass again, right? The, the most influential blogger of the 19th century. <laughs> um, he, one of the things he's talking about the liberals at his time, okay? And how they were constantly reaching across the aisle. You know, that, that phrase wasn't around then, but that's basically what he's talking about. The liberals in the North accommodating the, the, the right-wing, uh, you know, slave aristocracy in the South. He says, under this so-called practical wisdom and statesmanship, we have had 60 years of compromising serv servility on the part of the North to the slave power of the South. And this encouraged the South to become more and more exacting, unreasonable, arrogant, and domineering. And ultimately, the South felt empowered enough to secede, right? The same thing has happened over the last 60 years here. The Democrats are constant, the liberals constantly reaching across the aisle, not saying anything that's going to rock the boat too much, preventing real radicals from saying, offering real alternatives, because that'll cost us elections, right? right. Um, so that we, after 60 years of servility on the part of the liberals to the far right, we have a Trump presidency where the neo-Confederates hearkening back to the Civil War days are and you know and Nazis and clans etc become this open constituency because there's never been a voice out there actually offering a real alternative. The Republicans had a voice to their right. You know the, the far right was always haranguing them, right? And hey, you're not towing the line. We're going to abandon you. But on the other side, that hasn't happened. 
the liberals have constantly been able to continue compromising, continue compromising until you have people like um, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, um, Hillary and Bill Clinton, um, Barack Obama, all of whose policies were to the right of Richard Nixon, right? In his day, the Republican Party um, had not moved this far to the right. They were basically similar to where the Democratic Party is today. And so there's always going to be that, no, don't engage in truth-telling because that is going to jeopardize our power. And the problem is that sometimes that's true, mm. right? I would say that the policy differences between Barack Obama and John McCain wouldn't have been that great. That would be a good time to support third parties. That would be a good time to build alternative power. And you had a um, Afro-Boricua and African-American woman leading the Green Party at that time, right? right. Um, but then you come to a moment like happened last week uh, where because we haven't built that alternative power, you're stuck with this tactical choice of allowing the Confederacy into office or having to support right-wing Democrats. And tactically, you know, I think it is absolutely the right thing to do, which so many people did. Um, making a tactical choice. Uh, I don't know if it's a majority, but a huge portion of the people who voted for the Democratic Party were not excited about them. We're not under any illusions yep. that this was the path to freedom. I'm a tactical voter, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, um, of course, I've forgotten your question by now, but whatever it was, Frederick Douglass has an answer for it. Yes. That's the key. Go back to Frederick Douglass. Um, I think so. I'm just like pausing to collect my thoughts a little bit here because I really love talking to you all the time, Ricardo. I learned so much. Um, you talked about, right, like the fear of losing power because you're a truth teller, mm. um, right? Like that telling the truth. Um, that telling the truth means that we might lose our power or um, so I'm just, I'm just actually marinating on that because another thing that you said in, uh, in that same moment was there is a time there's been these really key moments, <clears throat> excuse me, these really key moments where um, we could have spent a lot of time investing in alternatives, whether that alternative was a third party or I'm even thinking about alternatives to policing. Like we have these moments that are really fertile for that kind of imagination, that kind of what else is possible. Um, and then people keep getting yanked back by fear. Like we can't do that. We won't have enough power. Um, there's not gonna be enough people who support it. Um, like this is the system as it exists. We need to work. We need to work the system that we have instead of um, imagining new ones. And I think, well, if you answer this either, either in the realm of, right, like our electoral politics or this, this specific conversation that we're having about police abolition, like what do you think we can do to like unstick that fear that we can try something new? Um, that whether that's, you know, look at more progressive, um, more progressive politicians, you know, like AOC is always in the headlines. Our own congressperson, Ilhan Omar, you know, is someone that people look at in that way. How do we just sort of like 
unlock imagination about other possibilities because we've tried all of these, right? We've tried what exists. And so we keep ending up in the similar place. Well, I mean, to take it back to storytelling, right? For one thing, we need to be able to have an intimate relationship with our own history. We need to know what people faced in detail, what they struggled with. Um, what did what kept Martin Luther King up at night? What you know? What struggles did Tecumseh have to go through to build the alliances that he built in the early 1800s? Um, what did Ella Baker feel were her biggest mistakes? Right. We need to not just invoke the ancestors for inspiration, but actually for advice and insight. Not that we're going to do the same things, make the same choices, but we have to understand what our history is. And then we start learning about possibilities, right? So, for example, um, a friend of mine recently was talking about the need for um, Black self-reliance in struggle, right? Which is very true and very important. But one thing she said was because historically nobody has ever stood up for us, right? We need to go alone because history has taught us that we are alone because nobody has ever, ever supported us. And to my mind, I went back and I cannot think of a single black struggle that was not supported by other people, that did not bring other people into solidarity, right? But we need to know those stories because we always remember the stories of betrayal, mm -hmm. but we forget the stories of solidarity. But the solid, and the stories of betrayal are good good medicine, good things to keep in mind as a warning so that we remain alert. But the stories of solidarity are essential so that we can understand how to build power. Because when you're up against an empire, when you're up against global systems of oppression that oppress different people in different ways, nobody can, nobody can win alone. We really need to be able to see each other with greater clarity so that we can be able to unite. And after 40 to 50 years of the nonprofit system, we've learned to see ourselves, our own community in relationship to funders, yeah. right? And so other communities become competition. You know, you mentioned in, the, in your intro bio of me that um, I started out as a youngster working in support of the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords who were in alliance, also with some white street gang people in a, in a political alliance. And really there, concept, and this is my wording, but it's based on what I learned, what, you know, watching the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton, people that like that organized, is that they were, all of these different groups were deeply rooted in their own identities, uh -huh. but they saw identity as something that you needed to struggle with and become solid with so that you could bring it to the table of solidarity. And at that table, you're dealing with other people who have also done their own homework, and they're bringing that to that table. Under the nonprofit system, identity has become a brand, right? We develop and we copyright our own brand. It's our own intellectual you know, property. You're borrowing our tactics. You can't do that. We develop those tactics, right? Mm -hmm. And we're in competition because we're going after the same funders. And that's one of the real injuries, I think, that we've experienced over the last 50 years since the suppression of the mass movements of the 60s and 70s that we need to be able to heal from and to reconnect those threads that have been um, broken so that we have our peripheral vision so that we can each see each other and not just see, oh, it's just me and the man, right? And y'all are just bit players and my play, right? 
Yeah. I really appreciate you so much, Ricardo, as a student and teacher of history. And um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. <clears throat> I'm, I'm a little bit hoarse today. Um, but can you talk to me a little bit about the history of abolition organizing, right? Um, because like these calls to have a different relationship to public safety, to get the state out of um, out of policing our neighborhoods, like it didn't just it didn't happen on the day that George Floyd was murdered. Like there's a long, long history of people questioning the role of police, questioning the role of prisons in our communities, particularly black and brown communities. Um, yeah, if you could talk a bit about what the history of this work has looked like and how do we situate right now, how do we situate <clears throat> the defund movement right now within that broader history? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's um, struggles that are explicitly abolitionist and some that are just instinctively so. Mm. You know, because instinctively, we want to get rid of whatever's hurting us. Yeah. Whatever's oppressing us. We might not have abolitionist language, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the struggle for the independence of Puerto Rico, nobody ever uses the phrase abolish colonialism. They say, give us freedom. <laughs> right? 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 Yeah, this is about freedom and independence. So it's really about getting rid of bad shit, you know? That's what, what it is. So that lots of struggles are, are actually abolitionist, you know? We want to get rid of what's hurting us, um, whatever form it takes. And obviously, the, the foundational struggle that we think about when we talk about abolition is the struggle against slavery. And that has very strong resonance right now because, in fact, abol abolishing the police is one of the unfinished tasks of that period. Yes. You know, the, the, the police system was meant to answer a question, and that is how to keep black people in servitude after they've been formally emancipated. And the way that was done was through criminalization. So you had the black codes, they were called, or the black laws, right, which were yes. meant, to, you know, were so broad that you could sweep up whoever you wanted and arrest them and put them in prison. Who do they want to sweep up? Black folks, you know. It's like a net that would catch up the black folks and the white folks to swim right through it. And once they were able to land people in there, give them a conviction, give them a felony, whatever, even a misdemeanor in those days, they could be leased back out as essentially slave labor to, to um, plantations and factories. And they could be, and that leasing system didn't end until the 1940s. Right. Because it was harming the U.S. in the propaganda war against the Nazis and the Soviets. But then when you land people with these convictions, you take them out of competition for credit, for land ownership, for good jobs, for education, you know, for all, for, you know, housing in, in you know, safe neighborhoods. Um, and you, ex you preserve that for white folks, right? So then you have a natural constitu constituency in white folks who have been trained to think that black folks are criminal because of what they see. And that's sort of mm -hmm. the, the way in which the system works. So that really abolition means going to the root. It means finishing the unfinished work of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass is you've got to pull that tree up by the roots. And this constant trimming, that's what, um, what reform is. 
that somehow we, if you trim this thorn tree long enough, it'll turn into an apple tree and it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for this time today, Ricardo. Um, can you tell folks where they can find more of your art or find out more about the MPD 150 project? Um, any other resources for abolition? Yeah, well, my own art is found on my website. Um, yep, it's, uh, you know, as you can read it there. And my name is easy to Google in the age of social media and the internet. It's easy to find somebody. MPD 150 is on, on our website and in our social media. You can find a lot of resources. Um, we've always seen ourselves as a project that's intended to put wind in everybody else's sails. So you can find lots of links and references to other places you can go, either to support, to learn more, and so forth. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad to have my friend Ricardo here with us today. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And I guess the, the bottom line, which I just want to pass along here is, and I say this not as a pep talk, but actually as something that I believe having spent my life researching it, and that's that another world is possible. Thank you. All right. Be well. This has been Sound of Phillips, a KRSM radio podcast exploring South Minneapolis and the complex issues we face as people who live and work here. Today, I'm grateful for Ricardo Levens Morales, who always, always gives me a lot to think about, feel about, and dream about. Another world is possible, Southside. How are you dreaming into it? Till next time, this is Arna Landrum on KRSM Radio 98.9 FM.